Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. When last we spoke, Mia Farrow had just been served divorce papers on the set of Rosemary's Baby by her much older husband, Frank Sinatra, who was furious that Farrow had refused to quit the Roman Polanski movie to join Sinatra in another film called The Detective. As we noted in our last episode, it has been suggested that Mia Farrow was gleeful when Rosemary's Baby opened in 1968 and trounced the detective at the box office. And maybe she was. But before either movie opened, after the actress and her estranged husband tried to reconcile and still couldn't make it work, Mia was devastated. And when her sister Prudence called in the midst of her own crisis and suggested that Mia come with her on a trip to India to study transcendental meditation, Mia packed a bag and got on a plane. This is where today's story begins. We'll track Mia and her misadventures, including her roles in two really interesting and yet nearly forgotten movies, through 1970, which was the same year that a lyricist named Dory Previn emerged from a psychiatric hospital with an album of songs written in the traumatic aftermath of her divorce from songwriter-turned-conductor Andre Previn, who had left Dory a year earlier for Mia. And one of Dory's songs, written after her breakdown, was about that betrayal. Join us, won't you, for the second and final part of our story, Mia Farrow in the 1960s. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. 
netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. It was winter in the Himalayas, and the ashram had no heat. Mia was one of 50 students from all over the world, including the folk singer Donovan and Mike Love of the Beach Boys, who had come to learn from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Each student was asked to meditate by themselves for 12 hours a day, and many would wander the grounds of the ashram wrapped in blankets borrowed from their bedrooms. Mia had a private initiation with the Maharishi, where he was to give her her individual mantra. As he was saying the secret word that she and only she was to use to unlock a meditative state, Mia sneezed. (coughs) She didn't quite hear what he said, and she asked him to repeat it so that she could make sure she was meditating correctly, but he would not. And he had plenty of chances. The Maharishi took a special liking to Mia, meeting with her every day and giving her mangoes. She noted somewhat warily that the Maharishi didn't seem to be giving anyone else mangoes. Mia wasn't the center of attention for long. Soon the Beatles arrived, all four of them, with wives and girlfriends, assistants and reporters in tow. They had just released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and like Mia, they had airlifted themselves out of the center of the culture to look for peace and answers. Unlike Mia, they had reportedly brought with them a stash of LSD. They started joining Mia and the Maharishi in their VIP afternoon sessions, and Mia would join the boys and their entourage as they sat by the banks of the Ganges and jammed on guitars and sitars. One of the songs that Lennon kept playing was the theme to a Vincent Minnelli movie called Goodbye Charlie, which had been written by the husband and wife team of Andre and Dory Previn. This was the first time Mia had hung out with people her own age since high school. She had spent so long pretending to feel comfortable with Frank's older friends. Now that she was surrounded by peers, she felt like she was pretending to be young. The Maharishi grouped every member of the camp into teams that would look out for one another, and John Lennon and George Harrison were grouped with Mia's sister, Prudence. Prudence was incredibly serious about meditation and was annoyed by these British guys who were always coming into her room with their guitars, singing obla oh, dee this, obla oh, da that. John and Paul would later turn Prudence's seriousness into a song. George had been the Beatle who had convinced the other three to come to the ashram, and he was the one who was most committed to learning Transcendental Meditation. First Ringo and then Paul each had their fill and took their leave. Harrison and Lennon left together under murky circumstances. Somehow, Lennon in particular had become disillusioned with the Maharishi. Some have said the problem was that the supposedly ascetic teacher seemed to be very savvy about money, and one story suggests that he even asked the Beatles to pay for their training by agreeing to siphon off 25% of their earnings from their next album into the holy man's Swiss bank account. The ever-reliable source Wikipedia quotes a not-available-online Los Angeles Times article as saying that the problem stemmed from a film about the ashram that the Maharishi was trying to get the Beatles to appear in, which was to be directed by Mia's father, John Farrow. But given that John Farrow had been dead for five years by this time, 
That probably wasn't the problem. The stickiest story is that Lennon decided to leave when he heard that the supposedly celibate Maharishi was, as Lennon put it later, quote, trying to rape Mia Farrow or trying to get off with Mia Farrow and a few other women, things like that. George Harrison and Paul McCartney later said that they believed that they had been misinformed about the Maharishi's untoward behavior, and they both publicly supported the Maharishi towards the end of his life. But in her autobiography, Mia confirmed that something weird did happen with the Maharishi. Maybe it wasn't rape, but it made her uncomfortable. They had been meditating alone in his cave, and when they stood up, he put his arms around her in a way that didn't feel right. She panicked and ran to Prudence's room to tell her that the Maharishi had put the moves on her. Prudence told Mia that she was being silly, that it was an honor to be touched by a holy man. But Mia no longer felt safe at the ashram. She packed her things and fled into the night. She spent the next few weeks hitchhiking through India, sleeping in either hotels or huts, whatever was available. Her brother Johnny joined her, and they camped out on the beach in Goa with a couple of old friends, neighbors from Beverly Hills. They smoked hash constantly. And then one day, swimming in the ocean, Mia and Johnny found themselves joined by a shark. They made it back to shore safely, and Mia called her agent. She was ready to return to the cocoon of movies. So she flew to London, where she was to star opposite Elizabeth Taylor and Robert Mitchum in a Joseph Losey movie called Secret Ceremony. In 1968, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burden were still the most famous couple in the world, and their every move was an event, an event almost too large for London to accommodate. Ever protective and toxically jealous, Burden began inserting himself into the Secret Ceremony set out of paranoia that Liz might otherwise screw Joseph Losey or Robert Mitchum or both. Mia joined the Burdens for their daily two-hour lunches and for their evening cocktails, which stretched well into the night as Richard started reciting poetry and as he got really tanked, doing whatever he could to undercut, if not flat-out humiliate, his famous wife. Secret Ceremony starred Liz Taylor as a past-her-prime prostitute who, while mourning the death of her daughter, encounters a spooky orphan, played by Mia, who believes Liz resembles her dead mother so uncannily that she's compelled to invite this maternal surrogate to move in with her in her totally bonkers Art Nouveau mansion. Mia felt connected to director Lozy, almost masochistically. Lozy later acknowledged that he had pushed Mia into performing dozens of takes, keeping the camera rolling all the time as a way of breaking her down. At the time, Pharaoh called the treatment humiliating, but later she sympathetically called Lozy the most tortured man I ever met. He got results. Secret Ceremony isn't for everyone. Some people think it's a disaster. Some people think it's camp. And it was enough of a box office failure that it's considered a landmark of how far Liz Taylor had fallen in the decades since she'd been with Burden. But it's really something to see. And in it, Mia Farrow gives the most haunting performance of this period, when she was not a child, and yet not really fully credible as a grown woman. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. 
Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck, available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mia and Frank had reconciled for a night or so before she had started to shoot the movie, but by the end of the secret ceremony shoot, Mia had come to the conclusion that she and Frank shouldn't try to build a life together. She loved him, but she was also finding herself wrapped up in the spirit of the 60s in a way that Frank would never understand. She protested the war in Vietnam, she met rock stars and poets and radicals, she explored astrology and conspiracy theories about extraterrestrials. She lived in Malibu and partied hard. In her autobiography, she talks about going to Joshua Tree with Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. In Polanski's autobiography, he says that Mia's companion on that trip was her current boyfriend, Peter Sellers, with whom Mia would get really stoned and watch for UFOs. Eventually, though, it was time to go back to work. And work was a movie shooting in New York called John and Mary. John and Mary was directed by Peter Yates, whose previous film was Bullet. Mia's romantic co-star in it is Dustin Hoffman, who had recently emerged with The Graduate. It's a second or third tier new Hollywood film, highly influenced by European cinema, storytelling-wise, It's interestingly experimental in its attempt to show a modern one-night stand as experienced differently by the man and the woman. It doesn't quite work, or maybe it's just really, really dated, but it's worth seeing as, if nothing else, a curiosity. John and Mary is never, ever mentioned when people are talking about the movies of this era, and I first picked up Mia Farrow's autobiography called What Falls Away because I was looking for more information about this movie. But Mia glosses over John and Mary as... Not particularly rewarding for me, artistically. In fact, it's at this point that Mia's beautifully written and heretofore seemingly transparent memoirs start to reveal themselves as being her story, in that they're only part of the whole story. Here's an excerpt from this portion of Mia's book. What I recall most about the making of John and Mary was that during it, a relationship was forming via telephone with Andre Previn. We had mutual friends in California and I'd seen him there occasionally, along with his wife. But when we bumped into each other by chance at a party in London, circumstances had changed. I was no longer with Frank and he was, for the most part, living and working there as a conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra. The minute John and Mary was completed, I joined Andre in Ireland, where he had rented a cottage in the hills near Clifton. He'd wanted to take me on a holiday. It was the first time we had spent more than a couple days together, and he was wonderful. And he was more interested in me than anyone had been in my life. I had returned to Martha's Vineyard, and Andre was back in London when I discovered I was pregnant. Across the next five pages of the book... Mia excerpts from a diary she kept during her pregnancy, a period during which she was often separated from Andre. The diary begins in September 1969, when Mia is three months pregnant. This is the entry for January 6, 1970. We had hoped to be married by Christmas, but Andre's wife Dory doesn't want a divorce, which I completely understand most of the time. But I shouldn't complain about anything. Andre and I are happy, and we feel married, and someday we will be. Nothing else matters. Two pages later, outside of the format of the old journal, Mia writes that of Andre's two marriages... I knew little, only what he told me. 
He had conducted a discreet, separate life for some years, but did not seek a divorce until he met me. Dory Previn experienced things quite differently, and made that clear publicly through her songs. I'm sorry to have contributed to her pain. It's possible to read Mia's book and not totally understand the dynamics at play here. I certainly didn't the first time around. And from what I've read, I get the sense that initially, the general public was encouraged to be happy for the sparkling young ingenue and not think too much that her baby daddy was someone else's husband. But Dory Previn did her best to make sure that there was no such misunderstanding. Dory, born Dorothy Langan, came to Hollywood in 1955 at the age of 30, having survived a rough childhood. Her father had been gassed in World War I, and he came home believing he was sterile, and thus believing that Dory, who was born in 1925, could not be his biological daughter. He was abusive emotionally and physically to Dory and her mother. Dory left home as a teenager and started working in clubs as a singer, working her own new verses to popular songs into her act. She was brought to MGM by Arthur Freed, the head of the studio's legendary musical unit. Freed soon introduced Dory to a songwriter named Andre Previn. As Dory put it later, We became partners. It was nice. He was a little bit miffed when I showed up because in those days, women didn't know very much, apparently. He said, show me something. So I played some material I'd been doing in a little club. I was very shy about this. And he said, these are good. Like I didn't know. Next thing we got married. Here is where I should stop for a second and admit that this is not what Dory Previn sounded like. In a little bit, we'll hear clips of her speaking and singing. Her voice is actually incredibly difficult to imitate. It's both refined and noticeably Jersey. My impression is based on what I imagined her speaking voice would sound like from looking at her album and book jacket photos from the 1970s, in which she wears aviator glasses and shapeless post-hippie house dresses, her hair in a wild halo of curls, her facial expression somehow both defiant and fun-loving. She looks a little like a cross between Angela Davis and Mrs. Roper. Anyway... Dory and Andre married in 1959, and together they wrote music for movies. They wrote songs that were performed by Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Doris Day. Dory was nominated for three Oscars before she retired from movies, but the two songs she wrote for movies that are really interesting didn't win any awards. Maybe they weren't even good movie songs because of the fact that Dory smuggled so much of herself into them. One of these was called You're Going to Hear From Me, and it was sung by Natalie Wood in the movie Inside Daisy Clover. In that film, Wood plays a teenager plucked from obscurity and transformed, almost against her will, into a movie star. The song becomes her ticket to ride, so to speak. Dory Previn later called it an angry song and admitted that instead of writing lyrics in the voice of the character, she used the song as a vehicle for her own frustrated desire to tell her own story. Everyone tells me to know my place But that ain't the way I play Why am I daring to show my face? Cause I've got something to say Move over, son And give me some sky 
She went through with telling her actual own story in her other key movie song, the theme from The Valley of the Dolls. Dory Previn was eventually diagnosed as a schizophrenic, and during the time of Valley of the Dolls, she was also addicted to tranquilizers and pet pills. She had started taking the pills in order to calm her inner demons enough to present a calm face when doing business in Hollywood or playing hostess at home. And soon she was pretty heavily sedated pretty much all the time. She wrote a lyrical pattern that mimicked the way pillheads speak. As she put it, the way one repeats phrases and never gets out the entire sentence. That was Dionne Warwick, who was selected to sing the song for the soundtrack, but Dory had written it, thinking it would be sung by Judy Garland, who was initially cast in the film and then fired. Dory felt that she and Judy were kindred spirits. Here she is talking to the BBC in the 1970s. I think that she was a victim of a Band-Aid society, which we had in those days. You patched over everything. And for a time, in fact, she even saw the same psychiatrist that I did. And he felt that he could help her. And the heads of the studio said, no, just give her pills and keep her going, you know. I think that had she been able to take the time and go away for a while, uh, that she could have been helped. And she might, in fact, have been alive today. And we've suffered a great loss of that talent and ability. When I saw her, as I wrote, when I, when I wrote the song uh, for Valley of the Dolls, she was supposed to be the original uh, older woman in, in Valley of the Dolls. And I wrote that original song for her. She recorded it. And then she wouldn't come out of the dressing room at the first day to perform. And I had just come out of a mental hospital myself at the time. And though it was well known with her, I couldn't say anything about it. You know, it was secret with me. But I still say, as I wrote, if we could have talked together and said it and been open the way we are today about those things, maybe we could have helped each other, because all of us, because we were not, in fact, alone. That was the last song Dory and Andre would write together. Andre was in the process of transitioning to conducting, a transition that Dory encouraged, even though it meant that he was away a lot. Meanwhile, Dory was living a double life, hiding her many troubles behind the facade of a docile Hollywood housewife. As she told People magazine years later, I slept through most of the 60s. Somewhere in the middle of that decade, Dory met Mia. The songwriter took note of the young actress's translucent skin, which gave off the aura of breeding and privilege. The older woman also noted ruefully that Mia was young enough to wear knee socks without looking ridiculous. But Dory wasn't exactly jealous. She was too naive. Mia started seeing both Previns socially, and at first, it was Dory's friendship she courted. One night, when Mia was still married to Frank and both Frank and Andre were out of town, Mia invited Dory over to her place. That night, Dory confided in Mia her biggest fear. Dory couldn't accompany Andre as he traveled around the world for work because she was afraid to fly. And she was worried that Andre would meet a woman on his travels who would offer herself to him. 
and he would accept out of loneliness. Some time after that, Mia and Andre found themselves at a boring party in London with neither of their spouses in sight. This may have been after Frank served Mia with papers, as she implies in her book, and although she doesn't give a date, that could have been when she was in London shooting Secret Ceremony. In any case, at some point in 1969, Dory Previn tried to fly to London to fight for her marriage. She boarded the plane, and before it took off, she heard a woman screaming. She didn't realize that it was her, and she couldn't stop it. Before she was forcibly removed from the plane, Dory had ripped off her own clothes. She had ran up and down the aisles of the plane and threatened another passenger, a priest. She was put into an ambulance, taken to Culver City Hospital, and later institutionalized for the fifth or sixth time. Later, she said that by that point, she had lost count. This incident is the first scene in Previn's stream-of-consciousness memoir, Midnight Baby, published in 1976, in which she explains that the voices in her head had told her that there was nothing to worry about on this flight, that she had been booked on the highest quality plane, flown by the most talented pilot. So Dory felt great at first, but the voices in her head had also told her that Sidney Poitier was going to sit next to her on the flight for protection. And when the doors closed and the seat next to her was still empty and there was no sign of Mr. Poitier... That's when Dory started to doubt all of the other stuff the voices in her head had told her about the flight's safety. And that's when she lost it. Some reports contend she received electroshock therapy during this day, but she doesn't mention that in her books, or as far as I can tell, her songs. She does repeatedly mention that whilst in the hospital, she tried to flush herself down the toilet. In the hospital, Dory's doctor suggested that she try writing free verse in an effort to express some of what she was feeling. That therapeutic writing turned into songwriting, and by 1970, Dory Previn had an album's worth of songs, the first personal song she ever wrote. One of those songs was called 20 Mile Zone, and it was about a woman who gets pulled over by a cop for screaming at the top of her lungs, alone in her car. This was pretty much the polar opposite of a song Dory had written for a movie a decade earlier called Control Yourself, which was sung by Doris Day. Control yourself, contain yourself, restrict yourself, restrain yourself, and always let tranquility be your goal. Control yourself, contain yourself, and if you can't, explain yourself, and try to act agreeably on The difference between Control Yourself and 20 Mile Zone is the difference between playing the game because you still believe there's something in it for you and no longer giving a shit. Because you've learned, maybe more than once, that the game is totally stacked against you. No one wanted to sing 20 Mile Zone, so Dory decided to sing it, and the rest of her songs, herself. First, she sang it to a girlfriend who was appalled. You can't reveal that about yourself the friend said. Dory said, well, it happened to me. I'm willing to take the risk. 20 Mile Zone was not even the most revealing or the riskiest song of the 10 that made it on the album Dory Previn released in 1970, 
called On My Way to Where. This album seems to be out of print, but some of the songs are up on YouTube. Several of them, with titles like I Ain't His Child and With My Daddy in the Attic, are about the lingering pain of Dory's childhood. Mr. Whisper seems to be about the voices in her head. And then there's Beware of Young Girls, the song which Mia is clearly referencing in her book, the song which, for better or for worse, Dory Previn is probably best remembered for. Beware of young girls who come to the door Wistful and pale of twenty and four She was my friend, my friend, my friend She sent us little silver gifts, oh yes, she did Oh, what a rare and happy pair, she inevitably said As she glanced at my unmade bed She admired my unmade Long before writing her book, Mia told a journalist that she thought Beware of Young Girls was tasteless. She also said that Dory had told the story wrong. In Bog Trotter, Dory Previn's second autobiography, this one much more linear than the first, Dory acknowledges that Andre only left her for another woman, quote, after I had deserted him for another reality. And she admits that she was surprised her husband had put up with her craziness as long as he had especially since they never had had an open conversation about Dory's mental illness and addictions. But she also refuses to back Mia's claim that her marriage was over by the time Mia and Andre had hooked up. Dory wrote that she first learned of Andre and Mia's affair while she and Andre were still living together, and only because it was on the news, and that a call from a newspaper reporter was how Dory found out that her husband had impregnated his girlfriend. And then she tried to fly to London, and that was when she was pulled off the plane and put in the loony bin. When she was left by Andre Previn, not only did Dory lose her husband and songwriting partner, but her identity as an individual artist was subsumed by scandal. At first, she didn't even know what to call herself. She couldn't go back to songwriting under her maiden name. She knew she would always be poor, crazy, jilted for Mia Farrow, Dory Previn. So she decided to keep Andre's name. She wrote, I kept it and used it. When On My Way to Wear was released in 1970 and earned encouraging reviews, Dory continued to write and record her own songs. She released two full albums in 1971, and then in 1972, wrote a musical called Mary C. Brown and the Hollywood Sign, inspired by the story of Peg Entwistle, the actress alleged to have committed suicide by jumping off the H in the Hollywood Sign. The high point of her solo career came in 1973. She never sold a ton of records, but by that point she had attracted a cult following. She had been terrified to perform in public, but eventually she got tired of people complaining that her songs were so dark. She thought they were funny. So Dory did a concert at UCLA in an effort to prove it. Then, she was invited to perform at Carnegie Hall. And at first, she thought she couldn't do it. Never mind actually getting on the stage. She was afraid she'd have a breakdown on the train to New York. What if I flip out in the dining car? Dory asked her friend, Mike Nichols. What if you do? Mike Nichols said in response. People expect you to go crazy now, he told her. They won't hate you for it. 
In other words, the thing that she most feared could happen had become her brand. And she went to New York, and she didn't crack up. Instead, she performed, alone but for a pianist as accompaniment, on the stage at Carnegie Hall, just four years after trying to flush herself down an insane asylum's toilet. Somewhere in the middle of all this, Dory wrote a screenplay called Third Girl on the Left, which was made into a TV movie in 1973, starring Kim Novak and Tony Curtis, about an aging actress who falls for a younger man. There are clear parallels between that story and Dory's relationship with Joby Baker, an actor and painter 10 years Dory's senior, whom Dory met in the mid-70s, married in 1984, and stayed with until her death in 2012. Dory felt that because she was too old to be considered a female prize, and Joby was too poor to be a traditional male provider, they were perfect for one another. About as self-aware as a schizophrenic gets, Dory's autobiographical writings are full of such ruminations on role reversals, dualities, and splits. Her first memoir is titled Midnight Baby, based on her belief that having been born at midnight doomed Dory to live a fractured existence. On the cusp between night and morning, dark and light, in Bogtrotter, she frequently invokes nuclear weapons and the splitting of the atom. Dory's obsession with her own duality made her the perfect mirror of a Hollywood obsessed with laying cool facades, or as she would put it, band-aids, over any ugly truths. And in that sense, maybe she found her perfect other in Mia Farrow, a woman who has unquestionably suffered hardships and tragedies, but who, even in anger and indignation, always seems to show the public a face of placid beauty and serenity. Mia Farrow is the poster child for keeping it together under any circumstances. Dory Previn became a terrible pill addict just trying to hold it together as a Hollywood housewife. When Mia, or really Andre, freed her from that post, Dory, though devastated, was ultimately liberated to show the world what not holding it together really looked like. I lost my job and I lost my money. Well, you can laugh, but it wasn't funny. How will I support myself, I said, and I held my head. How am I gonna keep myself together? Whichever side of this story you put more stock in or feel more empathy for, the connection between Doria and Mia persists, despite the fact that it only exists because Andre Previn decided to leave one woman for the other. And it's held sway long beyond Mia's split from Previn in the late 70s. In 1992, Newsweek columnist Jerry Adler suggested, in print, that Mia's accusation that Woody Allen had molested their daughter Dylan in an attic was some kind of fantasy induced by Dory Previn's song about her own childhood with my daddy in the attic. Mia's terse apology to Dory in her book seems to indicate how little attention she wanted to give her ex-husband's ex-wife. For her part, Dory Previn may have openly exploited the Previn name and its connotations to get her midlife career off the ground, and in that second act, she aired a lot of her own dirty laundry, which included a little bit of Andre and Mia's. But answering questions about her wrecked marriage got old quickly. I am so bored with the references to Andre, she told People magazine in 1977. 
I wrote one song about my relationship with him, Beware Young Girls, and ever since, every interview refers to it. Look, I write music, I write lyrics, and I am a concert performer. I have written two books. What do I have to do to just be my own person? Well, my biggest credit doesn't end up that I was the former Mrs. Andre Previn. Well, guilty as charged. I'll say two things about Dory Previn's work, and I'll give her the last word. First, a lot of her songs are great, but Mary C. Brown and the Hollywood Sign is the best song about the darkness of Hollywood mythology that I've ever heard. And second... Bog Trotter is really one of the great memoirs as manifestos. And it makes it clear that Beware of Young Girls could have been a lot more tasteless. Even in that moment of self-revelation, Dory was holding back. In Bog Trotter, published in 1980, Dory includes a kind of rewrite of her lyrics to Beware of Young Girls. This one much more vicious and heartbreaking and reflective of her own experience way before Mia Farrow walked into her life. Beware of young girls who come to your bedroom door, Dory writes. They're love-starved and desperate to screw themselves into legitimacy in the shadow of your mythical king. And they're well-trained by the mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. They've been programmed to believe their only defense is to make another lamb equally lost. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. On today's episode, we again had special guest Amy Nicholson playing Mia Farrow. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You know the Hollywood sign stands in the Hollywood hills I don't think the Christ of the Andes ever blessed so many Seems to smile like it's constantly saying cheese. I doubt if the Statue of Liberty ever will come on.